We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, as this is our third week in these verses. Um, I made a mistake in the way I planned uh, my sermons. Well, actually, God made it's God's fault. Because um, um, I don't make mistakes. Um, uh, yeah, in his providence, I just had, <laughs> I had too much information. And um, like I was joking with my community group this past week that like, I, I preached for, I think, 53 minutes last week on parenting. And I still felt like it was, you know those old scratch and sniff, sniff stickers? It was like, I felt like I'd only scratched the surface of what, what is involved with parenting uh, children. And so we're going to hit on parenting again today. And I know it's Easter, um, but you're going to get the gospel. In order to, I just felt like we needed the continuity from last week to this week to engage with the, how the gospel applies to our parenting after so much instruction last week. And so happy Resurrection Day, but we're actually going to hit another topic I saw a joke, I think, yesterday. It was someone, this man standing outside of church, shaking the hands of the pastor. And he was one of those people who only goes to church on Christmas and Easter. And he said, Pastor, I, I think you're in a rut. Every time I'm here, you preach on the resurrection. <laughs> well, I'm avoiding that problem today. So um, Colossians chapter 3, as we deal with part 2 of parenting. First, picking up in verse 20, and then we'll jump over to Ephesians chapter 6. First, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Ephesians chapter 6, jump over there, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This ends the reading of God's holy and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stand forever, and it will, because the God who wrote it is living today. All right, parenting. It's, a, it's hard, isn't it? Parenting is a colossal challenge. I don't know that there's, for many of you, it's the most difficult, challenging thing you'll ever do in your life. I know for me, it has been. It's physically challenging. I've, all, I've often thought, particularly my wife left and went to a homeschool conference a couple weeks ago and left me with the kids for a couple days. And while she was there, I was like, this is great training for Navy SEALs. You don't sleep. And then all day, you're involved in like backbreaking labor um, and people yelling at you. <laughs> um, spraying you with their, with their water, with their, with their sippy cups. Um, yeah, it's, it's a rather shameful thing how physically exhausting kids are. It, it, every, it seems like so many mornings I wake up, and the first thing that comes to mind is when I get to go back to bed. Oh, praise the Lord, tonight I don't have a meeting. I get to be in bed by 10 o'clock. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. In fact, I've been so tired lately. Um, my wife got me uh, this, this, the, the, the a magnum opus biography of uh, Winston Churchill for my birthday in December. It's a three-part volume. It's enormous. And um, I'm in part one. And I've been reading it since December 11 on my birthday. I'm maybe 15% of the way through because I read it every night. Tells you how far I'm getting. But in fact, I've been so tired the last couple of weeks that this has happened on multiple occasions. And I read it on the Kindle on my phone in which I have fallen asleep trying to find the spot I left off the <laughs> night before. So parenting, yeah, parenting is really physically hard. 
It's very, very, very difficult. My wife and I are about to have our fourth child in May, and so we're gearing up for even more physical challenges. Um, already have three. I think just with three, I was up four times last night with babies. I love what Jim Gaffigan says about having four kids. He has four kids. And people ask him, that seems so bizarre in this day and age to have four children. People ask him what it's like to have four kids, and he said, well, it's like this. It's like you're drowning, and then someone hands you a baby. <laughs> so that's what we have to look forward to come May. By the way, Jacob and Brianna Morton had a baby yesterday. Praise the Lord. Little Ruth Ann. It's amazing. That first kid, it's like by this point, we're looking forward to number four and feeling like we're going to be drowning. When we had that first kid, one kid felt like we were drowning. It's amazing how with each kid, you're like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm drowning. And then somehow you might drown, but somehow you live through it. I don't know how that is. Parenting is really hard and we're not making it easier with all the rules and to this day and age, you have to know, look, look no further than the early fights that you have in life, the difficulties and the challenges of parenting even infants and little children. And, 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 and it brings much tension in the life of, of different people, right? We have the mommy mafias out there, the baby-wise people versus the attachment parenting folks, right? These people are as vicious as Mexican drug cartels. I mean, they just destroy one another as to their various paradigms. And the reality is, mostly it's moms and dads who are crazy the way they behave about these various uh, paradigms for parenting. And the reality is, what they are insane. Parenting made them go crazy, and they're looking for a way to be sane by creating some sort of structure to control their life. And it doesn't get any better when your kids get older, does it? In fact, it may get more difficult or at least more stressful. You have all the schooling decisions how are we going to train up our kids academically? They go through the academic pressure. You have the idea of paying for college. How are we going to do that? You've got proms and dating and not going to prom and not dating. These are problems. We have ADHD. Oh, the ADHD. It's everywhere. And grounding and discipline and oh my, oh my, the social media. Right? Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat. And I'm sure I'm behind Periscope, whatever it may be. You, you need like... You need the NSA to move into your house to keep up with your kids' social media interactions, don't you? And all, to add to all this, a toxic culture that is now, through that social media, able to invade your home. You could, you could put up a 40-foot wall. I mean, Trump could build your wall around your house, and you still, the world will be able to invade your home. It's so toxic, our culture, a culture of obesity and video games, of materialism, of sexual, sexual obsession, of depression, even in our children. In the last 10 to 15 years, childhood suicide has gone up 300%. Nor that would we live in a relativistic culture. <laughs> and then, like, life used to be so simple as a parent, but now you have to even worry about their food. I mean, all our kids have allergies. They've got peanut allergies and gluten allergies, and they're lactose intolerant. My one-year-old, when he turned one, drew, threw up for eight weeks almost every day, sometimes four and five days, four times, five times a day. And we didn't know what was going on with him. Eventually, he stopped eating bread. He self-diagnosed as having a gluten allergy. Seriously. It's bizarre. So I bought him skinny jeans and a V-neck shirt and sent him to Austin and with some quinoa and some tofu. I was like, here you go, son. <laughs> Parenting has never been easy. Never, ever has it been easy. In fact, the first family had it tough, didn't they? Some bizarre family dynamics going on there. One brother kills the other. You think your Easter dinner is going to be awkward. <laughs> Parenting is very, very difficult. And for many of us, it's even more difficult because we come from broken homes. 
And then I came in last week, and for 15, 53 minutes, I hammered away at the biblical call to instruct and discipline your children and challenge you. I think I had 13 ways how not to exasperate your kids. I've never had so many points in my life. And it probably just felt so crushing. What hope do we have? What hope do we have to have emotionally stable children who are decent citizens, much, much less so to have children who live for the glory of God and for his kingdom and who, are, who live to obey him to a parent as disciples of Christ? What hope do we have? Here's our hope. <clears throat> the hope is that we have a father. This is how God calls himself. That he is our father. When he calls us and tells us how to pray, he says, pray to your father. The hope that we have for parenting, the hope that we have for improving as parents in the gospel is this, is that you have a good father. Four things, the way this good father gives us hope as parents. First is this. The father gives us hope for our parenting by first and foremost showing us our need for him. Our father gives us the role of parenting so that, we need, so that we can see our need for him. Many of you didn't realize what a sinner you were until you became a parent. In order to hear the good news, we must understand our need for the good news. God gave you children to change you. See, we think the number one problem in our, in our lives is the, how, how are we going to change and fix our children? But actually, the number one problem in your parenting is how are you going to get fixed? And that's what God is after. Sanctification, that's what parenting is. One pastor put it this way. He says, kids, they're like little sinners living in your house are like sanctification microbes that are scrubbing, scrubbing the, and buffing you uh, into sanctifying a sanctified person. God gives you children to bring you to the end of yourself. How have you experienced that? I've experienced that. Every single one of our kids, all three so far, within six months, I have an emotional breakdown. Every single one of them, within six months, I have one of those throw stuff across the house, leave the house, cry for hours, sort of emotional breakdowns. The pressure and weight of life, of adding and caring for another human being has crushed me, and it has done that three times. So I have something to look forward to this year with the fourth coming into my house. It brings us to the end of ourselves. You know, it's so, one of the dumbest things that Christians say is that God will never give you more than you can handle. Whoever said that has never been a parent or they're delusional, or the PTSD from being a parent has caused them to forget how painful and difficult being a parent of little kids was. God will give you more than you can handle, and that's called parenting. Some good friends of ours um, had learned this lesson. In fact, this Janie and Spencer Mooney, who I I talked about last week, were instrumental in kind of discipling us through our early parenting years, and were so great to us. And I referred last week to how when he challenged me in an area in my life in regards to my parenting. But they, they, they had a learning process as well, and they would share it, how God humbled them. They had four they had seven kids total, but they had four kids really quickly. And and for the first four kids, they had just had really compliant, great kids. First or for the early years, and they thought they were God's gift of parenting. And then the third kid started showing these signs of not picking up on things very easily. And it became worse and worse and worse to the point where they realized that their child was special. That he wasn't going to be like all the other kids. Then God gave them their fifth child, the wild one. John. John John is great. I had John in my youth group. John got engaged last week, and John's a godly man, but man, he drove them crazy for years. They used to describe John as this. They said, you know, every, they would tell John about the discipline he was going to get if he did something, and they said he was the type of kid that he would look, and you could tell he was calculating his mind. Is the discipline worth it for me to do this? 
In their words, it was always worth it to him. The greatest story they have about John is after he watched Master of the World, he grabbed a knife and he put Z's in every piece of furniture on every wall of the house. A strong-willed child broke them. A special needs child and a strong-willed child showed that they were not God's gift of parenting. It humbled them, and that was improved their parenting, and it made them better parents. See, seeing your need for God will make you a better parent because it does this. It makes you see your need for God and the gospel, and it makes you, and it makes you a parent who repents as you parent. We become parents who see our absolute need for God's forgiveness and his love and the help that we have, we need from him. And this makes you an infinitely better parent. I mean, the type of parent who really provokes his child to anger is the parent who doesn't see their own sin. Who disciplines their kids and challenges and tells their kids that they have to confess and repent of their sins, but the kids never see them repenting of their sins. What could be more frustrating for a child to see mom and dad saying, you should live like this and live like this, and you should believe this about the Christian life, but they never see mom and dad applying or, or the Christian life to their life if their parents are hypocrites? That provokes a child. What provokes a child to anger a parent who teach a faith that they don't seem to understand themselves? A perfect parent, the parent who never confesses, the, per, the parent who never asks for forgiveness, doesn't bring any room for their children to grow. In fact, that parent will often become a tyrant. Because they've never experienced their need for God's forgiveness, and so they don't forgive their kids in the way that they ought to. I also say this in parenting. God shows us our need of him in parenting so that we come to the end of ourselves and see that parenting cannot be our righteousness. Did you hear me, parents? Coming to the end of yourselves, coming to realize you have ultimately no power to change your kids because you are just as messed up as they are will protect you from seeing your children as your means of righteousness before God. To merit before him, I have done this. What a great parent I have been. And so God owes me this. Ray Cortez tells a story about a woman in this church who this was her experience. She raised two boys and they appeared to be godly men and they both, two of, two of her boys went into ministry. One of them was a missionary by the way, there, there's, no, there's not a parent who's more obnoxious than whose kid's gone into the ministry, right? I mean, they just drop it into every line. Oh, yeah, my child who's a pastor? And I said, it's the, you know, my mom's the mom of a pastor. But, like, this is, what, this is what her idol was. Her righteousness was that her kids loved and followed the Lord and were serving in, in great ways. But then they reached their 40s, and then one of the brothers did this. He abandoned his wife. He left his mission. He abandoned his children. He abandoned his responsibilities, and he ran off with a lover. Another man, in fact. And her response was to shut him out of her life. She refused to answer his phone calls. She banned him from ever entering her home ever again for this transgression. Now, as mad as she was at her son, she was even more furious at God because she knew, she thought she knew how the system worked. She believed in the proverb that said, train up a child in the way he should go, and when they are old, they should not depart from it. But she forgot to realize that that was a proverb. She did a Christian school, and she brought her children to church, and she did family devotions, and she felt God deserved to give her righteous kids, kids that would never struggle and kids that never walk away from the Lord. She did her part, and God owed her, and he had failed her. Her righteousness was her great parenting. Her righteousness was how her kids turned out. But the difficulties of parenting will make you realize that you actually have no power you have no power to really change your kids. And we cannot merit anything by this. We need the grace of God. And so the first ways in which, in which God gives us hope as parents is to show us that we need him. The second 
is the Father gives us hope for our parenting by setting us free. By setting us free. He sets us free by his fatherly love. You know, many parenting, you know, like Jim Gaffigan said, while you're drowning is difficult. So is drowning, when you, or so is parenting. It's difficult when you're in chains, if you're imprisoned. The reality of, uh, for many of us is that we're trying to parent while we're in chains. We are a people in captivity. We are people whose life is run and controlled. We are enslaved to idols that drive us and that control us, and they shape the way we parent. You ever had this experience as a parent? You have that, that, the run to, to bedtime, dinner, cleaning up, bathing the children, cleaning the bedroom, getting them into bed, and the whole time, you're just agitated. The day has been long, you're tired, you're irritated, you're angry, and you're a jerk. You yell, and you fuss, and you push, and then, and then your children finally go to sleep, and you walk in the room to turn off the night lights, and you look at their angelic little faces, and what happens to you internally? Oh, crud. How, how, how could I treat them this way? Why am I so angry? Why am I so annoyed? Why do I speak to them in this tone of voice? Why, how can I act this way towards these little ones who God has given me to care for and to shepherd? And we evaluate our behavior and we go, what happened to us? What, could, what was going on inside of me? What was controlling me in that moment? And it feels like something was controlling me. And the reality was something was controlling you. It was a little God inside of you, an idol that was demanding your way. It was your selfishness and your fear and your anxiety. It was your fear that your child wouldn't approve of you. These things were driving you to parent in the way you parented. We were held captive by our sinfulness and our selfishness, by our idolatry as parents. And yes, for many of us, we were even held captive by our past. We were held captive by the way that our parents parented us. The number one, number one way, unless God intervenes in your life, description of how you're going to parent is how your parents parented you. James Ryle, who's a pastor and now a, a traveling kind of preacher for conferences, tells the story of how his father was, when he was two years old, was thrown into prison. And a couple years later, because of his mom's inability to care for him, James was institutionalized, went to an orphanage, and lived in institutional settings for the rest of his childhood until he was 18 years, years old. And, and, and because he was institutionalized for those years, he, his behavior was kept under control. But as soon as he was set free, his life unraveled, and it unraveled quickly. By the time he was 19, he was in a wreck when he was uh, under the influence killing one of his best friends. He began to sell drugs in order to make his way in the world and eventually was arrested and sent to prison for, for, the, for selling those drugs. But while he was there, he came in contact with believers and came to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ and his life changed. And he left, when he left prison, he went into ministry and got married and had a family of his own. But as his, his kids were getting older, he began to have a desire to meet his father. And so he tracked down his own father and eventually was able to sit down and have a conversation with him. And when they sat down to have a conversation, they were sharing life stories and what had kind of transpired over the course of their life. And in particular, the common bond for both of them is that they had spent time in imprisonment. And so James was telling his father about uh, the prison that he was in. And he, his father asked him what prison that he had been incarcerated at. And he told him the name and his father was taken aback. And his father, who had been a welder, said this, I helped build that prison. And James realized this was a metaphor for his life. That he had been living 
in a prison that his father, his own father, had built. And that he needed to be set free, and only by Jesus was he able to be set free. So many of us are enslaved by the failures of our parents. It shapes the way we parent today. How many of you said this, I will never parent like my parents parented me? And yet you're exactly like them. And you find yourself saying and disciplining in exactly the same ways that they disciplined you. Or, or you've gone the opposite direction. They were harsh and abusive with you, and so you never, ever even come close to disciplining or instructing or challenging your kids. They still, they're still, their parenting still controls you. It's still yanking you around. You're living in reaction to who they are and what they have done to you. But the only way, here's brothers and sisters, the only way to be... To not be your parents or to not live controlled by your past and what your parents have done and how they failed you is that you need a new parent. You need a new parent. His name is God and he is your father. But here's the problem that the scriptures outline is that we have run away from him. Is that he wasn't the one who sent us out. We are the one who ran from him. We rebelled from him. We wanted nothing to do with this God. In our life, has not looked right ever since. We need a new parents. We need to be restored to the father who loves us. Bob Patterson tells the story of his childhood. His mom conceived him when she was 15 years old. She was kicked out of her, fa- her parents' house because they were so ashamed of her. She went on to live a rebellious lifestyle, trying to make ends meet by going to the bars and meeting men and seeking their provision night in and night out. He was the oldest of five children of hers, all by different men. Each night before she would go out to the bar, she would make a huge pot of oatmeal, and the kids would wake up in the morning, and they would scrape off the grease at the top and then have cold oatmeal. His mother would bring home men who would beat the kids, molest them in various ways, and eventually, eventually, the authorities found out about this and removed them from the home. But life did not get any better for, for Robert, for Bob. He went to the foster care system, and the first family he went to, the husband would beat his wife with his hammer. The second household he went to, they would make them eat out of dog bowls. He was so traumatized by these events that he would urinate the bed each night until he was 12 years old. And so one of the households he went to, the mom was so gracious and so kind to discipline him and try to teach him how to not do this, that she would take the, the, the sheets that he had urinated on, wrap him in them, and then sit him in front of the school so the other kids could make fun of him in the hopes that this would break this awful habit of his. By the time he was 12 years old, he had been in eight different homes. And when he was 12, he was living in eastern Washington on a potato farm with a foster family who took advantage and simply just worked him all day long. And at one point while he, went, while he was there, he went behind the barn. He yelled and screamed at God, threw his face in the mud, and then stood up and told God that he hated him. And he said he determined right then and right there that he would never love anyone ever, ever, ever. And what kind of parent do you think Bob became? What hope and what chance do you think Bob Patterson has of the, being a loving and caring father? Most, of the, most likely he was going to grow up to be an abusive father. Unless something happened. Most likely, how, how hope did he have of, of raising emotionally stable kids? Much, much less loving and leading children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. He didn't have a chance, but that's not what happened. Instead... Robert Patterson grew up, became a pastor, raised a number of kids who all followed and loved the Lord, and they attest to his graciousness as a father. So what happened? He got adopted. He got a new parent. 
You see, in Western Washington, when he was 12 years old, there was a fisherman who was 45 years old, and he and his wife had never been able to have kids. And they went to the authorities, and they said, we want to adopt a child. And they, and they said, you're too old to have a baby, but we'll, get, we'll let you have a teenager. But they warned them. They said, the teenagers have been through so much abuse that so many of them are psychologically damaged. But they said, we want a child anyways. And so they gave them a book of 500 teenage kids in the system just in Washington alone. And they were sifting through the book... And Robert Patterson said, by only, by, only for some reason that God knows, that when that wife, when that woman looked down and saw him, that she said, that is my child. And he said, his life changed on Christmas Day, 1959, when that couple walked up and they said to him, Bob, will you be our child? You have to have a new parent. To know and hear the Father's love is to change you. Now, listen, some of you have sung, My Jesus Loves Me, all your life. But you, you've never come to terms. You never actually heard his voice say to you, You are my beloved. Jesus loves me is for somebody else. But you need to realize is that God comes to you and he speaks over you and he says, You are my child, you are my son, you are my daughter. But so often we reject, we reject that. We run away from him. We've become spiritual orphans because we have, we've rejected his love. This is the story of history. And what this means is this, is that whether you had a broken family, you may have had great parents like I did. But what it means is this, is because we've run from our father and our sin and our rejection of him and his love for us, that we are all alienated from God. It doesn't matter if you were, you were born in an abusive home or if you lived in a Norman Rockwell painting, you are alienated from God in fact, why do we take so many drugs in this country? It's because we are a people who are struggling with separation anxiety. We've been separated from God and we don't even know how to handle it. The story of our lives is what we have done is we have gone to every... Like, it's like my children's book. They have this book in which this bird falls out of the nest and they go to a train and a tractor and a cow and they say, are you my mother? Are you my mother? And we have gone to idol after idol, to God after God, and we have said, are you my father? And we have moved in with them, and they've told us what they do, and they have found, we have found them to be abusive. See, the gods of this world are indeed abusive. They'll take you, take what they want from you, and then leave you empty-handed. Our separation from God affects the way we do everything. It affects the way we work. It affects our sex life. It affects our recreation. And it affects our relationships, in particular, our parenting. And so what hope do we have? The hope that we have is that God pursued us. The hope that we have is that God has come to us and communicated to us his love for us. And he has answered the deepest questions of our hearts. See, Steve Gleason, he was a tight end for the New Orleans Saints. Then he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. Because of his prominence, as he progressed in this disease, he had opportunity to um, interview a number of, of famous people. And he was creating videos as he was going through and meeting these folks uh, and asking their advice as to what he should leave for his children, what kind of advice he should leave, because he wasn't expecting to live for very long. And one of the people he got to interview was um, Eddie Vedder, who is the, the lead singer for Pearl Jam. If you've ever seen Eddie Vedder, he's a bad dude. Eddie Vedder's a tough guy, but he has written songs about his separation from his father. And Gleason knew this, and so he asked about his father. He asked Vedder this. He said, what would you... What would you want to, most want to know from your dad? And Eddie Vedder said this. He answered that deep down, I would just want to know that he loved me and how much. 
And then he began to break down. That's the question that resides deep down in the human soul. Does my father love me and how much? But the Bible, the Bible doesn't leave us wondering about this, does it? Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you get that? That the Father sent the perfect Son, the good Son, and sent him to die to bring you, the rebellious child, the ones who has rejected him, to bring you back in the fold. That's the love of the Father who pursues us and cares for us and brings us in. And when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out to his Father, there was no response so that when you cry out and you say, Father, do you love me? The voice of God echoes back to you and says, yes, you are my child. And if you understand that, if you understand that, that will set you free. Now you have to appropriate it to your life. You see, you have to appropriate it to crush and kill the idols, the things that are claiming to be the God and Father of your life. And you have to appropriate it. So let me go back to last week's sermon a little bit and just apply this gospel truth to your life in a few areas. One of the ways that we looked at last week is that we can have faulty priorities in which we don't take up the responsibility as parents. And the gospel sets you free from those faulty priorities. The gospel sets you free from saying, I get my value, my honor, and my dignity from what I can make and from my success in this world. The gospel sets you free from the false priorities that says, if I, can just, if I can just buy my children's love, if I can just give them whatever, whatever they want, then that makes me a good parent. You know, the gospel shapes that and shifts that. You see, what your children really want from you is what? They want your face. They want your delight. They want your joy. But you cannot give that unless you've heard the delight of your father unless you've understood how much he has cared for you. You see, your experience may be this, that you, God has given you great gifts. You've had success in business. Maybe you're wealthy. You've had athletic success, something, and you have found that those things are nice, but they don't satisfy. You found that only walking with him and hearing the Father's voice is what satisfies and delights your heart. And when you've understood that, you, you turn around and delight your children's heart with your attention and your love for them. What about for us passive and pushover parents? The gospel sets you free. Why is it that so many of us under discipline and, and don't instruct or do the difficult things of saying no to our kids? It's because our children, our children are an idol and we need their approval. So many of you, because you didn't get your father's approval and your mother's approval or somebody else's approval in your life, you're now looking to your children for their approval. It seems so childish. It seems so, so like pubescent. Like a 12-year-old who's going into school and saying, somebody, somebody, somebody approve of me. But that's exactly how we are. We want our kids to give us approval, and so we can't bear to have our kids look us with that face and say, how dare you do that to me? How dare you tell me no? How dare you discipline me? See, how does the gospel set you free? The gospel sets you free by saying you've been, you been loved and you're approved of by God the Father, that if you've got to saturate yourself with that message, you know, that he cares for you and you can say, all right, I don't need the approval of my children. I want it. That would be great. That would be awesome. But I'm going to do what God has called me to do and discipline them faithfully, knowing that God the Father approves of me. The gospel sets free the harsh and critical parents. This is the parent who over-disciplines. This is me. This is the parent who rides their kids like crazy. And why do we do this? Because we can't bear for our kids to be failures. Too much of our identity is caught up in who they are. And so they can't, they can't be wrong. They can't be imperfect. They must be perfect children. 
The gospel and the gospel only will set you free from the need to have children who are perfect and perfectly right. Are you an angry, nagging parent who is often harsh, who inserts unrealistic and unfair expectations on your kids, as we talked about last week? And the only way you're going to move out from that, you, what you need to become is, is like God the Father, who is what? He is steadfast and compassionate and slow to anger, and he is gentle and he is kind. But you'll never be that. You'll never be that until you come to understand God's gentleness for you, his kindness for you, his steadfast anger towards, or slowness to get angry to you, his steadfast love towards you. You have to realize that God forgives you over and over and over again, that he sees all of your mistakes, all the stains on the carpet of your life, and he loves you anyways. And when you understand that, you can be gentle to your child. The gospel sets us free, sets us free the controlling parents, the parent that wants to keep their child dependent, perhaps into their 30s and 40s on mama. They may move out of the house, but mama likes them under her wing, under her control. The parent who can't, their child can never take risks in either their younger years or their teenage years. The parent always has to control every aspect of their life. And why is that? What have we failed to believe about the gospel in that regards to that? We're not trusting that God is good enough to direct and do what he needs to do for their life in a good and gracious way. We've not come to see that God has a plan for our children and to trust God the Father with our children's lives. And so many, for many of you, you have not come to trust God's plan for your life. Martin Luther, in talking to Phil Melanchthon, who was kind of a disciple of his, Melanchthon was a worrier. <laughs> he was anxious and addled all the time. And you, Luther used to say this to him. He said, let Philip cease to rule the world. What was he saying to him? He said, listen, there's one God who controls all things, and you aren't it, Philip. So stop worrying about it. For some of you parents, you need, a, you need, to, you need that message. That the gospel will set you free from your parenting to know that this is a sovereign God, but this is a God who has shown that he is so good by sending his own son. He's proven that he is a good plan, that he is a good father to us. Where do you need the gospel to set free your parenting? Appropriate that to your life this week. So the Father gives us hope by setting us free. But not only that, but the Father also gives us hope by giving us a new family. You see, you're not an only child in God's household, are you? He brings you into a community. As a church of Jesus Christ, we are called to parent one another's kids as well, of sorts. When, when we release children's church, did we send them back there and they're just kind of taking care of themselves? No. There's adults back there caring for our children, discipling them and teaching them and instructing them. I ask you this question in regards to our parenting. Are you your brother's keeper? The answer is yes. You are your brother's keeper. It is not every family for himself. It is not mama's intuition reigns all. There is accountability, the life to which we are to live into. That God has given us as a community of his people the great wisdom together. One of the great blessings of my life have been older parents who come into our lives and who have gone before us in our different stages and said, let me give you some wisdom and let me help you in that area. You're not supposed to parent alone. You cannot parent alone. And listen, listen, every, every generation has its blind spots. And we have a blind spot in regards to this area of parents, my age. We used to look at our parents and we used to say, they're not authentic at all. Look at that. They don't, they don't confess sin. They don't talk about how hard parenting is. And so what we have come to realize, what we think accountability is, and what we think authenticity is, is we just get together and we complain. I mean, oh, parenting is so hard. And so we've got grace-based parenting where we just tell each other, it's okay, it's okay. Oh, you totally suck, but it's okay. 
But we never give each other any wisdom or any accountability. You see, that's the difference between authenticity and vulnerability. My generation needs to learn to get vulnerable to let other people speak into their lives. Those who are older, who've gone before folks like me, we need you. We need you in our nursery. We need you caring and giving wisdom. And you, listen, people may get mad at you. Mamas who are already struggling may get angry at you. Now listen, don't be a jerk. You need to be in a relationship with these folks, but we need your wisdom. We need your care. Hillary Clinton was right. It takes a village to raise a kid. She just was wrong on which village it was. It's not the government. It's the church. Don't raise your kids by yourself. Raise them in God's family. Fourth and finally, the father gives us hope for our parenting by doing this, by giving our children a perfect father. What your children need is a perfect father, a perfect parent. And I got news for you in case you haven't realized this. You're not it. You're not it. What we need to give to our kids foremost is we need to give them God as their father. You point back to the perfect father. If you don't do this, here's what's going to happen. You're going to live, either you're going to live in denial of your flaws and failures as a parent because you can't handle them, or, or you're going to let your, the failures crush you and make you give up as a parent. Had, had someone who I, I knew fairly well, and, and I remember his, I was meeting with his wife, and she came and she was telling me about how his his four, he had a 14-year-old daughter who had been very, very difficult to deal with. And for 13, 14 years, he had sought to faithfully discipline. But her 14th year, he had had it, and he gave up, she said. He removed himself. And the reason why he had given up, because he had failed in disciplining and parenting so many times, he couldn't bear it anymore. So many of you will give up because you'll look at your failures as a parent, and you'll go, that's it, I'm done. I'm hands off. I'm piecing out of the situation. Let's just get him out of the house, and we'll be Okay. How do you get up every day and parent your kids, even the difficulty in the midst of your, your, your failings, is you must have rest in the peace of knowing that you can offer your kids the perfect parent that you know that you are not. Our kids need a father who loves them, who loves them more than we do. You know that God loves your kid more than you do? Pastor Ray Cortese tells a story about his experience in his own life with his, with his own child. He had a kid, his son, when he had to go in for surgery, he had a growth on his spine. He went in for surgery, extremely intricate, uh, intricate surgery, a lot of pain, had three to four weeks in the hospital, very painful recovery process. And as the day he comes home, they're so excited. This ordeal is finally over. They have a banner up at the house. They bought him a puppy. They bought him a bike. They are throwing a party, but he is home. While they're partying, partying the doctor calls, and he picks up the phone, and the doctor says there's been a problem. After, the, after the, kind of the drainage came off from the, the, the surgical wound, we've been able to do some tests and some pictures, and we've realized that we didn't get everything off of the spine, and we have to go do it again. He said he walked into the bathroom. It was the most honest conversation he'd ever had with God. He said, God, I am a terrible father. I'm a bad husband, and I'm an awful pastor. But you lay your hands off my kid. You can do whatever you want to to me. But you lay your hands off my kid. And he said he began to weep. He said in the midst of his, his weeping and his yelling at God, he heard the voice of God say this, you twit. I died for that boy. I love him more than you. I sent my son to die for him, to purchase his life. 
And I may bring difficult things into his life, but it's for his ultimate good. So you step aside and let me father. God loves your kids more than you do. Give them a father that's better than you, that loves them better than you. See, our kids need a father who covers over and fixes and forgives the deepest brokenness and worst parts of their sin. You see, you can forgive your kids' sins against you, but you can't save your kid's soul, can you? This father can. You see, he sent a perfect son to atone for your, your kid's sins, to give your kid a righteousness that he did not have. One final thing this father gives, the perfect father gives that we can't give. Want some Easter? Here's the Easter. Our kids need a father who, can't, who can defeat death. Jonathan Edwards, when he died, Jonathan Edwards is a great man and a great theologian. Now, he had some significant flaws, most notably of which is he owned slaves. So we're not going to say that he was a glorious man, but he was a great theologian and a great thinker. And he was a good father. Even evil men could be good fathers. But his family was away. He had only one daughter home when he came down with an illness. And it was so strong that he realized that he was, it was going to take him. And because he wasn't going to say goodbye to his family and to his wife, he had one daughter who was at home at the time with him. He said this, I'm not going to make it through the night. Take up a pen and pencil and write this down for me. He said, first of all, tell my wife that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us is, I think, a spiritual one and therefore one that will last forever. Saying, I'm going to be married forever with you. That's nice. Here's what he said to his kids, though. I want you to tell your brothers and sisters this, that it's about time they look to a father who does not die. We went and saw last year, I think it was the first movie we took our kids to ever at a theater. We went and saw the, the new Cinderella. I took, took my six-year-old daughter to it. She was like drooling through the whole thing. If you haven't seen it, it's beautiful. But there's this poignant, there's this poignant moment in, in, in that movie where the mom takes up Cinderella and she's, she's within a day or two of dying and she says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Why was she apologizing? She didn't sin against her daughter in that way, by dying. She was apologizing for humanity. She was apologizing for her weakness, that she couldn't, she wasn't going to be able to give her daughter all that she longed to give to her. See, Jonathan Edwards, he was a great father, and he had great kids, but what he was saying to his kids is that I'm a weak man, and you need a father who can defeat death. And that's what Easter is all about, right? The biggest problem our kids have is that they are dead in their sins. And the consequences of their sin is death and separation permanently from God the Father. And so our, our kids need a father who can not only atone for their sins, but defeat the consequences of their sin, which is death. You see, many fathers, this is the reality, many fathers have given their lives for their kids. Many. And many of you fathers would give your, your life for your child in an instant. Absolutely. Here's the difficult news, though. You may die for your kid today, but that only delays the inevitable. Right? In a broken world, it may be next week, it may be 10 years from now, it may be 70 years from now, your child will die. You cannot spare your child from this, but there's one father who can. That he, in the gospel, what we see is not only do we atone for our sins, but he reached and went into death to draw our children out to be the perfect father. And so here's what you need. You need to give your children the father, the sin-atoning, wrath-taking, death-defeating father. Give your kids Easter baskets today. That's great. Give your kids all, everything that you can give them. Seek really hard, try really hard to give them a great earthly father. But what you must do is give them the perfect father, your heavenly father. Let's pray.
Gracious Holy Father, I, I, um, I ask for those in this room who, whether it was even for just a moment, were emotionally engaged. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't deny what you're doing. Lord, I, I pray for those in this room who um, have run after all the things of this world and we have been asking the question, are you my father? And we have found nothing but abuse and dismay. Lord, Lord Jesus, I pray that we repent of those things. And Lord, we may not know what it is to live for you, but Lord, I pray that the folks in this room right now, that there would be those who would say, Lord, I, I don't know what it is to live for you, but I want to be your child. Will you be my father? I want to hear your voice. I want to follow you. And I want to be taught what it is to follow you. For those of us in this room who've confessed that and professed that and know that, but Lord, haven't appropriated the gospel truth that you are our good father into our lives, I pray that you give us the wisdom to think through that. The wisdom, the strength to, to wake up every day and not like me, think about the next time you can go to sleep. But think about, Lord, in what way if you love me that I can now reach out and love my children today. That we would live our lives in the power of your fatherhood over us. That we would hear your voice consistently. That we would long long for it and cry out for it. The Spirit of God would cry out within us, Abba, Father. And that it would change our lives. In fact, it would change our very parenting. We ask this in the name of Jesus, your perfect son. Amen.